building a deep space vehicle and heavy metal asteroids. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. NASA's Orion spacecraft is the next deep space vehicle designed to take humans to the moon. An uncrewed mission of the spacecraft is scheduled for late next year, launching from Kennedy Space Center on NASA's SLS rocket. Orion is getting assembled at KSC ahead of that launch, and managers reached an important milestone in its building, the adapter that connects it to the rocket. We'll talk with NASA's Amy Marassia about the process and what it will take to get humans back to the moon in the 2020s. Then, scientists have their eyes set on a metallic asteroid called Psyche. NASA's moving forward with plans to send a probe to the intriguing asteroid. So what can we learn from a metal asteroid? We'll ask our panel of expert physicists on this week's I'd Like to Know segment. That's ahead, but first, let's take a look at the latest space news stories making headlines. The SpaceX Crew Dragon capsule that will launch the next round of astronauts has arrived at the Kennedy Space Center ahead of a launch late October. It will be the first operational mission under NASA's Commercial Crew Program, a partnership with private companies to ferry astronauts to the International Space Station. SpaceX and NASA completed a crew test flight last month with the safe return of astronauts Bob Behnken and Doug Hurley. On the operational mission, SpaceX is launching three NASA astronauts and a Japanese astronaut. NASA's other commercial partner, Boeing, is planning another uncrewed test mission possibly late this year after a previous attempt failed to reach the ISS last year. And later this week, United Launch Alliance plans to send a U.S. spy satellite into orbit from Cape Canaveral. ULA's Delta IV Heavy will launch a classified satellite into space for the National Reconnaissance Office. The Delta IV Heavy has launched other big missions, like the first orbital flight of NASA's Orion capsule and the launch of NASA's Parker Solar Probe back in 2018. The mission is currently scheduled to launch at 2.12 a.m. Eastern Time on Thursday. Be sure to follow Are We There Yet on Facebook for a live stream of that launch. You can find more space news stories online. Visit wmfe.org space or give me a follow on Twitter. I'm at SpaceBrendan. NASA is assembling its Orion spacecraft at the Kennedy Space Center ahead of a planned uncrewed launch late next year. Way back in 2016, I had the chance to visit the pressure vessel, basically the empty shell of the spacecraft. Well, since then, technicians have added all the parts that make the spacecraft come alive, from wiring, computers, a heat shield, batteries, all that stuff. And now the vehicle stands more than two stories tall. Amy Marassia manages the assembly of Orion and joins us now to talk about the work that goes into getting it ready for its first flight, including the installation of the spacecraft adapter cone. Sure. So the um, installation of the spacecraft adapter cone is, uh, you know, it's it's the it's the one piece that's that's going to um, attach us to the um, space uh, launch system uh, rocket. So. So in terms of, you know, getting ready to, to be integrated and, and ready for our launch and our mission, um, this is, you know, one of the critical pieces um, to get us to that point. So, um, you know, significant milestone. Uh, we still have a few additional um, significant uh, hardware installations to go. But, but again, this, this installation of the SA Cone um, gets us ready to be integrated with the, uh, the rocket. Can you kind of describe the, the process? Like how long did it take to get this cone installed? What did you have to do? I, I assume it's a little more than just bolting it to the bottom of the spacecraft, right? 
Yes, um, so uh, we did have to move the, the crew service module, basically the Orion uh, spacecraft, um, into a new um, tooling fixture that basically kind of supported it, you know, in the air. So, so we had this um, workstation that we called the superstation, uh, where the crew and service module was essentially um, hanging uh, by the uh, the tooling fixture, and we bring the SA cone in underneath it. You have to uh, do a lot of shimming and alignment, so so that's kind of what takes place uh, first, is to to make sure we get everything aligned correctly, um, because there are six spacecraft separation mechanisms um, that are installed at the same time as the SA cones, um, and these are essentially pyrotechnics as well as um, compressed springs which is what will um, separate us from the SA cone once we um, get on orbit. So, so you put the cone on, you shim it, you get it bolted structurally. Um, there are some electrical connectors to mate. Um, and then we install these spacecraft separation mechanisms, um, which again, uh, take, take some time to get all that, that work done. So the whole process um, was about two weeks. Amy, I think the last time I was out there to see that Orion was in 2016, and it was just the shell of the capsule um, when I saw it. Now I, I saw some pictures of it, and as you describe how you lift it up to put on this adapter, it, it's huge, right? I mean, give, give me a sense of scale as to how big yes. this thing looks now. <laughs> kind of take a wag here. Um, I don't have dimensions right in front of me, but but I think, you know, that's probably at least 20 feet high, and then I think the spacecraft adapter cone is another six to eight feet. So, um, so yes, we are we are talking, um, you know, probably a, a several story building equivalent to uh, to how big the spacecraft is right now. With with the adapter installed, what kind of work do you have ahead for Orion? What what's next on on the list? Um, well, we do still have a lot of smaller closeouts. So you know, obviously, we still need access to to various areas of the vehicle for. Um, you know, checking fluid lines or making electrical mates. So there's there's a lot of, you know, small access panels and, and items like that that need to be installed. Inside the crew cabin, we still need to install um, some of the um, the parts for the uh, the crew seats. We're not actually installing seats, but mass stimulators um, inside the crew module. Um, but the biggest items are, are still on the exterior. So um, if you've seen the picture, you kind of see where... Um, what we call the crew module adapter, which is the, the piece that essentially integrates the, the capsule to the service module. Um, it has exterior walls that, that need to be installed, again, to protect uh, that area of the vehicle during um, launch and, and the mission. We still need to install the solar array wing. So we do have our international partners who will be um, joining us um, to do that installation since it is their hardware. After those are installed, we put on what we call the spacecraft adapter uh, jettison panels, bearing panels. And so those panels basically cover up the solar arrays as well as basically the, the service module. It covers up the service module with the solar arrays to protect it during ascent. Um, and then we still have to install what we call the forward bay cover. Um, and that is a um, metallic piece that is, that is covered in the um, tiles the thermal protection system tiles to protect it during the mission. And that goes on the top of the capsule, um, basically covering up all of the uh, the parachutes and the ele electronics up there to keep, again, them safe during um, during the mission and entry. Kind of talk to me about the planning process for this, because this is a new vehicle. It's a very intricate build and assembly. How much planning goes into all these different steps that you're taking to assemble it? Well, we do have um, our contractor, obviously Lockheed Martin, is you know responsible for the, the planning and the build. 
Um, so we do have a very detailed, um, what they call their working schedule, which, um, you know, I won't say it goes down to the, the Bolton washer level, but um, it lays out um, all of the significant uh, tasks uh, that need to take place for one of these installations. Um, those tasks are, um, you know, come off of the installation drawings, the engineering. Those are translated into what they call production orders, which is for um, the uh, engineers and the technicians that are on the floor actually performing the hands-on work. And then using those production orders with all the intricate steps of, you know, down to the bolt and the washer level, that is how they they essentially assemble the spacecraft. And, and one installation may have multiple production orders. So it is a lot of detail. Um, every, you know, step is, is carefully um, planned. And, you know, we do do the best we can to make sure that we cover all contingencies. But, you know, there are those things that come up that, that uh, you know, might take us a little bit more time or, or uh, you know, a slightly different part or something. But um, they do try to plan it definitely down to uh, the last step that needs to be taken to install a, a piece of hardware. Now, this particular vehicle that we're talking about, this is for an uncrewed mission. Does that does that change the way that you tackle the the assembly and 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 piecing it together? That that this is for an uncrewed mission as opposed to a crewed mission, or, or do you approach the project all the same? I would say we we approach the project the same um, because this is a, a vehicle, uncrewed vehicle. Um, we are not flying, as I said, some of the uh, the crew the crew items or crew systems. So you know, there's no seats, there's no um, you know console displays. Um, we don't have some of the the life support um, systems installed on this vehicle for uh, for crew. But but everything else is fairly common. Um, there might again be some slight design changes between this vehicle and the next. Um, but this is really our our vehicle to to prove out everything that we have on this vehicle can support you know a a longer duration duration mission around the moon as well as support you know a crew minus those crew systems. So so we really try to keep I think everything pretty much the same. Again, lessons learned. We might make some improvements, but but this vehicle is is our our opportunity to really prove out these current systems before we actually put a crew on board. I mean, it's the first deep space vehicle since the Apollo era. Um, I'm wondering, you know, how much you look back to the design of that vehicle and the processes that were um, that were used to to design and assemble those capsules. Are, are you using that now when you're working on Orion for the Artemis program? What what kind of um, callback is there to Apollo? I think for the previous uh, flight test, so exploration, exploration flight test one, um, our heat shield was basically a similar design to um, Apollo. Um, and so, you know, we found some ways to improve that. So we have a, a new heat shield design on this vehicle. But in some of the way that you package the equipment on the crew module, um, basically underneath the protective thermal um, protection system panels, um, the ones with all the tiles, they actually did look back at how Apollo, you know, ran their their tubing and ran their wiring, you know, on the vehicle. And they, they found, um, we actually call them Apollo gussets. So they actually um, found some ways that they could improve how we package or, or um, consolidate, align all of the equipment, you know, to be better organized, to be better um, oriented um, by using uh, what they did on Apollo. So, so I do think they reference it. Um, I will say this vehicle is, 
is, um, you know, significantly different in terms of the, the technology as well as um, probably some of the systems that we're, that we're using. So, um, so there is some reach back, but, but again, we're trying to make, uh, you know, innovative steps and, and use the new technology and, and improvements to make an even better vehicle than what we had during Apollo. This is not the only vehicle in the Artemis program. As you mentioned, it, it's, it's the first. Um, kind of what's, what's happening with the, the vehicles for Artemis 2, 3, 4, 5? I mean, have they gotten to, uh, to you at the Kennedy Space Center yet? What, what's the plan uh, moving forward once you pass this on to the rocket and launch it? Uh, how does work continue? We already are working on the Artemis 2 uh, Orion spacecraft. So um, I think it was uh, August of last year that we received the uh, the pressure vessel. So again, that that initial um, you know welded piece from the Michoud assembly facility in New Orleans uh, arrived in August of last year for the Artemis II crewed vehicle. Um, they are currently installing um, both uh, structural parts as well as um, propulsion and environmental control and life support uh, tubing and subassembly. So that that vehicle is uh, is well on its way to, to being built. Um, still have a long way to go, but but it is in production. Um, we're also working on Artemis II's uh, crew module adapter. So we also um, have started that that module. And again, that's the the piece that basically helps us integrate the the capsule with the uh, European service module. Um, so that that one is also, uh, I think, going to be complete by March of next year. So so that that piece is well on its way. Um, and then in Europe, um, we do have the the second European service module is also um, in production as well. I think uh, right now we're looking at a, a June uh, delivery date um, for that that module before we start integrating the the two elements together. So the Artemis II crewed vehicle is is well on its way to. Um, being built for that mission um, in uh, 2023, I believe. You know, you mentioned the 2023 date, the Artemis program, it's got, you know, this this um, fast-tracked timeline of landing humans on the moon by 2024. Has your process changed at all since, you know, since this administration has, has moved that timeline to 2024? How is that impacting uh, the way that you work and, and assemble these things? We are looking at ways um, to improve um, production. Um, you know, there's there's components that we plan to to reuse, so that that will um, kind of speed up. You know, not waiting for a, a new component uh, to be built and delivered. So um, anything that we can uh, reuse off of the Artemis One vehicle, um, that that is being looked at. Um, and again, we just you know, this is a development program right now. These first two vehicles, and so. Um, what we have learned during the Artemis One build and, and where we can make improvements and hopefully, um, you know, shorten durations or, um, you know, have our parts delivered um, more quickly. Um, all of that is being pursued so that we can achieve um, the next moon landing in 2024 with the Artemis Three vehicle to put the first woman and the, the next man on the moon. Do you have a, an example of, of something that you might be able to reuse? You know, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, something inside the vehicle. Is, is that kind of what the sense is? Uh, yes. Right now, the, the, the reuse um, components are essentially uh, what we refer to as like avionics boxes. So um, computers, uh, they call them the vehicle management computers, um, the power and, and data units. Um, you know, some of the antennas, phased array antennas, those are actually on the exterior. So um, 
things that get submerged in in the uh, the salt water, um, you know, on the exterior or the lower half of the external part of the vehicle um, are, are not being pursued at this time. So yes, it is um, essentially components inside um, the crew module, as well as, as I said, some of the higher um, components on the exterior, like those antennas. Um, all right, Amy, well, finally, before I let you go, um, the ONC building is such a cool place to work. And I mean, you're, you're working on a vehicle uh, that's, you know, this particular one is going to the moon. The next vehicle that you've got there um, at the ONC is going to take humans to the moon. Um, can you describe just what it's like working on a spacecraft that is going to, you know, return humans to the moon for the first time in over five decades? Uh, for me, it's, I mean, it's it's definitely, uh, it's an honor. Um, you know, this is something that previous generations achieved and, and the moon landing occurred before uh, I was born. So, you know, to be involved in, in this program and to be building this spacecraft that, that will um, bring us back to the moon, it's very, it's awe-inspiring. It's, it's, it's humbling to know that, uh, you know, we're not the first ones that did it, but we're going to do it again. So, you know, it's, it's, it's humbling to be a part of this wonderful program with, um, you know, dedicated engineers, technicians, um, you know, all the folks that are, that are needed to put this vehicle together. And, um, you know, I'm very, very excited for that launch and, and to see us, you know, in this case, go around the moon and, and, and go well out past it for, you know, a deep space uh, mission. Um, and then when we finally do get to put uh, a man and a woman back on the moon, um, it, it'll be a great achievement for my career to, to be involved with this program. That was NASA's Amy Rossia, Orion Spacecraft Assembly Branch Manager. Still to come, a mission to a metallic asteroid. And a sneak peek for what's coming up next week, a frequent guest of our show, WKMG's space reporter Emily Speck, She's launching her own podcast called Space Curious. Emily Speck will join us on the show to talk about some of the stories coming up on that podcast, including a deep dive into the space toilet. Don't forget you can stay connected to this show. Find us on Facebook. Search for Are We There Yet? Podcast, where you can also tweet us. We're at AWTY Space. Are We There Yet? Space. Get it. Uh, or send me an email for any story ideas or topics you'd like us to cover. That's Are We There Yet? at WMFE.org. Are We There Yet? is back in a minute. Listening to Are We There Yet? I'm Brendan Byrne. Scientists have their eyes set on a metallic asteroid. NASA's moving forward with plans to send a probe to the intriguing Psyche asteroid. So, what can we learn from Psyche? To help answer that question, we're joined by our panel of expert scientists UCF's Addie Dove, Jim Cooney, and Josh Caldwell. Addie Dove kicks off the conversation. You gotta have some sort of like metallic intro music for this one. Because it's a metal asteroid. Yeah, some Iron Maiden. So Psyche is a, well, it's being called a metal asteroid. Um, So that was one of the big, one of the big differences about it is it's a very different type of asteroid um, than we've been to before. So most of the asteroids we've gone to um, are interesting because of where they are in their orbits or because of the materials we think they have. We think they have 
Um, and they're, they're more sort of just like rocky and, and carbony materials. Um, but Psyche seems to be what we call a more metallic asteroid. Um, and it's thought that it could be sort of a core of a larger body that's left over. So, so if you think about the Earth, it has this metallic core um, that happens in a lot of planet formation. Um, and if there was some big impact event in the past that got rid of a lot of um, the, the rocky parts on the outside, you're, you're just left with the sort of more iron core. Yeah, the asteroid belt is a very, is a very violent environment, and especially in the past when it was... Uh... Uh, more populated. So these things crash into each other at high speeds and break each other apart. And it's a constantly evolving. And so, um, yeah, this may be the, the inner bit of something that was much, much larger, large enough so that it differentiated with the heavy metals sinking to the center. Um, and so that would tell us a lot about the history of the asteroid belt as well. I mean, are these type of, of asteroids pretty rare? They are less common uh, than the most of the asteroids that we see in the main belt um, and in the Trojan asteroids. Uh, metals in general are less common elements in the solar system than the elements that make up uh, the more common rocky asteroids. And so tell me a little bit about the, the mission. I mean, what, what is this space probe um, planning on doing? I was just going to say, so so the mission is itself is also named Psyche, which is always uh, challenging when you're when you're talking about it. I sort of um, and they also so they confusing yeah. So it's yeah. called the Psyche mission, and it's actually going to the asteroid Psyche, um, and um, it's uh, it's an orbiting uh, mission, um, and so it's going to try to. Uh, do the things that we do on asteroids, like so try to understand actually what it's made out of, what its surface is. Um, it has a, it'll, it'll image in a bunch of different wavelengths. Um, and it also has a magnetometer to look at the, if there's a magnetic field present or how it affects the magnetic field around it. Um, and then it has a, it's called a gamma ray and neutron spectrometer. Um, so that's just a different, different wavelength of lights to look at basically um, to look for um, different types of uh, hydrogens or metals or different things that might be present there. Yeah, I mean one of the one of the things about this is, is the kind of the tagline for this we always you know this is a metal asteroid but uh we actually know a little bit less about it I think than I mean we know lots about it but we know less about it than we sometimes claim. So it it might be the big metal core uh of, you know, a a thing that got shattered a long time ago. But there are some intriguing uh problems with this. So, so when we we actually measure the mass of this object and look at its size, if it is made entirely of metal, then it has a lot of what we call pore space. It has a lot of empty space in it. It's probably 70% or something empty space, which is weird if it's a big giant uh, piece of metal. Uh, and so w one of the cool things about this mission to it is we're going to get to learn, you know, just remote observing is challenging to find new information but this this mission will tell us lots of cool stuff and probably will you know definitively figure out is this thing mostly made of metal is it made of some metal and some rock is it uh, how much space empty space in there is there and and i think i read somewhere that you know the the psyche spacecraft um it, it came at a cost of about 100 or 850 million which in the grand scheme of things is is pretty 
uh, cheap in space exploration. Jump chain. How do how do these like smaller missions play into kind of this 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 you know this armada of spaceships that we're we're sending out there? Well, the Psyche mission is a in what NASA calls the discovery class of missions. And I think that price you mentioned includes the cost of the launch vehicle as well, not just the spacecraft and the science operations. Um, and so NASA has a sort of hierarchical structure of different levels of spacecraft exploration um, from very small things like CubeSats, which are coming in at roughly a million dollars a piece to uh, these so-called flagship missions, which uh, can be uh, two or three billion dollars over the life of the mission. Um, and so it's good to have that kind of variety of scale of mission uh, for discovery missions. It's several hundred million dollars, uh, and that's spread out over many years. Um, so it's not like that's all being spent in one year. And it enables us to go to lots of different kinds of objects uh, and do a lot of different sorts of exploration of our uh, sort of planetary backyard. And finally, this, you know, this is one of many asteroid missions. You know, I, I can think of a handful of them that are that are ongoing, including OSIRIS-REx, um, you know, which is at the asteroid Bennu right now. Um, what are we learning about asteroids as these missions continue to provide, you know, planetary scientists uh, like yourselves with, with yeah, data. Yeah, it's, it's an exciting time for uh, folks who study asteroids and comets and, and small bodies in the solar system. Um, one of the reasons we're interested in these bodies is because um, they can tell us a lot about the history of the solar system and the evolution of the solar system. Um, and they, there's also, I mean, there's also some interest in things like asteroids these days for future exploration and potential resource, um, use of resources. Um, but it's exciting because we focused for a long time on sort of the, the giant, the, the planets in the solar system, right? The, the sort of full-size planets. Um, but there's a lot of information that we can get from these smaller bodies that can tell us about the formation of those planets even. Um, and so the fact that like Psyche is a metal asteroid and that's maybe the core um, can tell us a lot about uh, how those things form or how they change. Um, and it's, it, it'll give us different insight than we've been able to have from these other uh, asteroid missions. And things like OSIRIS-REx and Hayabusa 2 are super exciting because they're going to bring samples back that we can actually study in the lab, which gives us very different capabilities than we can do when we're just orbiting a planet. Um, you can do much different um, isotope analysis and look at the chemistry of it in much more detail when you can bring a sample back. We're certainly seeing that there's a great variety of different kinds of objects out there. And so each new one we go to, we learn something new. That was UCF scientists and hosts of the podcast Walk About the Galaxy, Addie Dove, Jim Cooney, and Josh Caldwell. You can get their podcast, Walk About the Galaxy, wherever you get this show or visit walkaboutthegalaxy.com. If you've got a story, idea, or question for our scientists, send it in. You can email the show at yet at wmfe.org, or you can find us on Facebook. Just search Are We There Yet Podcast on Twitter. We're at A-W-T-Y space. Are We There Yet is a production of WMFE and WMFV. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. Our show has a new intern. Her name is Nellie Ontiveros. Welcome, Nellie. Our director of content is Steve Yasko. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>